listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. This last weekend, our Sangha was up in the mountains uh, at a retreat. So this is my fourth Dharma talk in as many days. So if this talk really sucks, just I'm Dharma'd out. <laughs> There's just no more Dharma. Uh, hardly. Uh, actually, my, uh, my wife asked me that question before uh, she, she asked it. She goes, so you, you spent? Yeah, out. And paradoxically, what's really beautiful about this work is that it, it really is a bottomless pit. But it's a bottomless pit as opposed to like, you know, you think a bottomless pit of despair or something like that. It's really about this, this fundamental quality of joy. Uh, even when it's dark, even when it's really hard, and it can be, as we all know, really hard. So with that in mind, I, I was, uh, I'll share just a, a quick, uh, quick story with you. Um, I happen to be pretty, pretty tight with a couple of the uh, uh, pastors, ministers uh, in the area. And I don't know, it's just God people, you know, they, they hang out, you know, the, the strange contemplatives. And uh, so uh, <laughs> this one guy, just, I just absolutely love him. He just radiates this just huge heart. And uh, he and I uh, happen to have lockers that aren't too far from each other at the, uh, at the health club. And, uh, you know, so we'll bump into each other. Hey, how's, uh, how's your parish? Say, Fine, how's your sangha? You know? <laughs> and uh, we were talking recently about, um, you know, how in, in uh, religion these days, it's everybody's trying to figure out, oh, well, we're all saying the same thing. You know, as a way of making each other feel good. And he says, do you, do you think we're all saying the same thing? I say, absolutely not. We are not saying the same thing. We're pointing in the same direction. But we're not saying the same thing. Totally different flavor of ice cream. Still ice cream, though. And he goes, he goes yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fairly progressive guy. And he says, well, so like, if you're going to distill everything down, you know, how do you do it? Now, that seems to be like the most amazingly common question uh, in relationship to the teachings of enlightenment. You know, if you're going to put it into two words, what would you, you know, things like that. And um, uh, I said, well, the, the, the fundamental, the core concept is to actually get beyond concept. Okay? That in other words, it's about questioning, really. 
that this work, whether you call it, you know, Buddhism, or you call it, uh, you know, uh, kind of Vedanta Hindu, or you call it, you know, uh, bits and pieces of Dzogchen in there, a little bit of Zen, a little bit of, you know, contemplative Christianity, whatever you want to call it, and I don't think it really matters because I do consider myself relatively unaligned. Um, uh, my training is very clearly Buddhist, and I, I don't, you know, stray very far, but I, I also think that Infinite Smile has developed this kind of capacity to hold a lot of different, different ways of looking at, uh, at, at uh, how to live. So distilling the actual, you know, getting, getting beyond the, the, getting beyond the beyond, getting beyond the mind, getting beyond this identification or series of identifications that we have, these roles that we play, getting beyond that is absolutely primary to the teaching. Letting go or let go, okay? In those five letters, you pretty much have the core, all right? But then when we get into the actual practice of letting go, what does letting go look like in the, uh, in the day to day? And I think there are here again, a number of ways of looking at this. But as I was pressed by my big giant pastor friend, you know, so, so then, okay, if, that, if, the, if um, the Dharma points you in the direction of let go, okay, what is the what is the practice? What is the practice of letting? How does that show up uh, best among you know uh, people in your sangha? And uh, I said, well, um, in in any any bit of this, we find that the core embodiment of letting go is uh, to not cause harm to not harm, that's it. So if we were gonna look at this and maybe a little bit more uh, Buddhist orientation, we have these, um, <laughs> depends whose rules you read, uh, but basically these significant 10, ten precepts, the 10 pure precepts. Uh, I'll unpack them here super, super briefly just so you guys can, can get a sense of uh, how they, uh, how they how they work. Uh, we don't kill. Thou shalt not kill, if you want to go Christian. Uh, not stealing. Not misusing our sexuality. Not lying. Not abusing intoxicants. Not uh, speaking of the faults of others. Not praising self at the expense of others. Not being greedy or possessive. Not being angry. And then the most important one of all, not disparaging the triple treasure, Buddha, our highest sense of self, Dharma, the teaching, and Sangha, the group. If you're going to distill it all into one, it would be do not harm Buddha, your highest self, Dharma, the teaching, or Sangha, this group. If you want to simplify it even more, don't harm. If you don't harm, if you live a life where you are not harming, you are living the life of an awakened being. Now, I, I say this having just gotten off a round of antibiotics. And damn, those bacterium, they got harmed, okay? The ego loves that stuff. 
The ego loves that. Ah, you harmed. Therefore, you're not really following the precepts. Well, the precepts or these guides or this impulse not to harm, uh, to, to get technical, we call it ahimsa. It's a guide. It's not a law. Vowing to live a life of ahimsa or not non-harming doesn't mean that you have to lock yourself in your, you know, apartment or in your house, you know, so that you won't harm anything. You cannot live without harming. I harmed a bunch of carrots on the way over here. Um, uh, I was, you know, just chomping down on carrots. They got harmed, okay? So before we start freaking out and saying, there's no way I could live without harming, the awakened approach to this is to be very, very clear about what it is that you're doing and what is the intention behind it. What are going to be the effects of this action? If you're putting yourself, for instance, in a situation where you are compromising mind or body, where you're misusing yourself in some capacity, you're generating harm. What would that be like, actually, to not harm oneself or anyone else in this process of living? Now, you could say, you know, well, I might hurt somebody's feelings. Yeah. Your job is not to keep people happy. It's to help them wake up. And sometimes that's really, it feels brutal. My daughter reminds me of this all the time. As a three-year-old, she, she reminds me of my brutality when I say no to her. Daddy, you said no to me. It's like, yeah, that, that's because that's, that's a knife. <laughs> Don't say no to me. Oh, no. I will be saying no to you frequently if I feel there's a potential where you can cause harm to self or other. Oh, daddy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> She's going to be one handful. I mean, she already is, but damn, I, I just, oh, I'm dreading teen years of her. <laughs> but I hope this, all kidding aside, kind of makes sense. Ahimsa. When it gets hot in an argument, can you remember Ahimsa? When you're about to do something that you know you really probably shouldn't do, is it generating harm? Think Ahimsa. Even if you're not looking at yourself in the mirror as the, you know, achieve some unsurpassable, perfect, penetrating enlightenment, you can live a life of ahimsa where you're not harming. At least that's the work. That's the practice. That's the embodiment of letting go. Let go. Do not harm. Buddha. Shall we sit?
poet Rilke has this great line. Um, that I keep coming back to again and again and again. It's, uh, uh, it just strikes me as so potent for what it is that we do. If we can look at the teaching as letting go and then not harming. We tend to compartmentalize and categorize, especially when something is powerful to us, especially when it's breathtaking. Uh, we want to give it a label, give it a name, because then we can, uh, okay, now I know exactly where it is. We create an attachment or series of attachments around whatever it might be. Um, my, my experience in relationship to this is kind of part of the Sangha lore. I've told this story again and again and again, but I was looking at Orion on this beautiful morning. Uh, I was on my way to the Zendo. It's about quarter to five or so, and I could hear the waves crashing, you know, uh, down at the beach. And there's just this really nice smell uh, uh, around the uh, the uh, the monastery. Um, a little bit of incense, a little bit of pine, a little bit of uh, uh, grass doing up in the morning. It was just just one of these moments where I'm just like, oh my god. And then there's Orion just like squarely just, you know, staring down. And it was always the constellation as a little kid I found to be the most, uh, the most just incredibly powerful. Uh, and my teacher walks by. And I'm looking up. I'm looking up. He pauses. He looks up. I go... It's so beautiful. And he looks at me and he says, that's a sin. Oh and then keeps walking. What a jackass. It's kind of what I was thinking to myself. Um, it wasn't uh, a moment of jackassery. Really, it was actually one of the most instructive moments I've had on my path. Because what he pointed out was, you know, after I got through my, what? You, you know, after I got through all that and things kind of settled down, I couldn't just let it be. I couldn't just allow the moment to just destroy me. Instead, I had to label it. I had to give it some type of definition. And therefore, my definition of beautiful really worked to defile the utter beauty of that moment. That's really what he was saying. And uh, boy, was he right. Does that mean it wasn't beautiful? No, of course it was beautiful. It just, it was so, it was so much more profound than my definition of beauty could ever be. So Rilke, along these lines, writes, For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we still are just able to endure. And we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Isn't that cool? For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, 
which we still are just able to endure. And we are so awed because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. It's terrifying being in the face of something that has the capacity to overwhelm our sense of normalcy, our sense of what's appropriate, our sense of what beauty is, of what hatred is, of what a hero is, of what a villain is, good, evil. And this puts us in a very, very interesting space because it's in our definitions, it's in our attachments, it's in our clinging to belief structures, patterns, convictions, that we actually begin to minimize our ability to meet the world with the fullness that the Dharma offers. This doesn't mean that your conviction, let's say, that uh, you know, war is wrong. It doesn't mean that that's incorrect. What it does mean, though, is that you need to look at your participation in war. Are you at war internally? If you're at war internally, shut up. You have no business talking about peace. Paradoxically, shutting up generates what? Peace. If we look at judgment, hatred, prejudice, and label it as wrong, are we able to also look in our own heart and see the hatred, the racism, the judgment in our own heart? If we can't, we should shut up. And in the shutting up, we actually are forced to let go. And in the letting go, then guess what can happen? Now we can actually begin to not harm. It's a paradox, but it's actually harmful to begin pointing the finger at others when we ourselves are involved. Activists really struggle with this. Um, because it's like, no way, man, I'm going down swinging. If, if I, you know, and you know what, there's a certain um, beautiful quality to that type of fire. What the teaching asks us to do is consider it more deeply. Consider what it is that we find terrifying and meet it. Don't run from it. Don't hide it all. That could be another one of those things that's added on to the definition of, uh, you know, a really cool non-dual teaching. No hiding. Face everything. Within and without. Then let go. And then don't harm. Be in the world. Anyway. These are places where we can get really, really, really stuck. And... Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, you know, how it is that we can kind of take these steps. I've touched on this before. 
I wanted to kind of reconfigure it a little bit, see if it might come across, sound a little, a little bit, uh, you know, shift it a little bit. But the ego really wants to wants to stay stuck, even if it says no, it doesn't. It it actually is working very hard to make sure it can maintain its position of stuckness, and uh, it does this by clinging grasping, holding on, okay? And that's its move. That's what it does. It goes in one of two directions. It either grasps, you know, as greed, or it avoids by grasping something that it's more familiar with. This is why sometimes you'll find people in relationship that will go after the same type of person they know that is wrong for them, you know? It's like they, they, uh, uh, they, they go after the, um, the qualities that remind them of what's familiar as opposed to what's transcendent, what actually will bring up terror. And yet that terror and that which brings it up disdains to annihilate. It's too scary, so what do they do? Uh, I'll go out with her or I'll go out with him. Or you'll put yourself in situations, we'll put ourselves in situations that we know aren't healthy, but we do it anyway because it's familiar and we get some quasi little tiny bit of validation. It's not sustainable, it doesn't sustain us, so we go and do it again, and we go and do it again. And then we are in this cycle of pain that does annihilate us. And yet that cycle of pain often gets us here. Anyway, so what does the ego cling to? It clings to thought. It clings to ideas. It clings to its opinions of what is and what is not appropriate, of what is right and wrong. It clings to all these ideas, judgments, doubts. It's a this and a that. And this is what we call dualism. Okay? It's two. This or that. Win, lose. Right, wrong, black, white. It also clings to feeling. The ego is clinging to emotion. It wants to feel good. It will do whatever it takes to feel good. It will do whatever it takes to feel good and not allow for too much consciousness to get in because too much consciousness actually forces its own reflection on itself, which actually leads to something bigger than ego seeing it do its dance on the stage of mind, which actually takes it out of the driver's seat. So it doesn't want too much consciousness no matter what it says. What do you want? I want enlightenment. I want to be awake in this life. <laughs> yeah, sure you do. Ego. Nice. I'll bet you do. Did you get past chapter two? No? Shut up. <laughs> but think about this. How much of our lives are spent on, I like, I don't like. This feels good. This doesn't feel good. I'll go there. Not there. You know. Here again, we're in dualism with feeling. Dualism with thought. Dualism with feeling, and then dualism with time. 
Lots of us live in the past. Lots of us live in the future. If we live in the past, we typically are bringing up pain. If we're living in the future, we tend to spawn stress, anxiety, fear. What could happen? And then you can do this, the ego does this really cool thing where it's like, what could happen? Maybe that could happen again. That thing from my past could happen again. Okay, and you're dancing. Oh, it's like you leapfrog the most important aspect of our entire being, which takes us utterly out of ego, which is actually shutting up the now, the present, the gift. And we avoid this now, typically, by staying stuck in our first batch of senses, our first six senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling. And thinking. Okay, so we have the five. Plus, in the Eastern tradition, we look at the sixth sense, not as a uh, ESP type deal, but rather as the sense of mind. Right there. Okay. The sense of mind, that sixth sense, is the interpretive self. Fantasy goes off in the mind. Dreaming goes off in the mind. Intellect, that potent force, is all about mind. And we can loosen things up the minute we get to that place. We can actually unbind our experience of being kind of bound to feeling and bound to uh, thought if we can get to that place where we can recognize thought, where we can recognize feeling, suddenly we're moving into a new sense. We're moving into the seventh sense. The seventh sense can actually watch thought, can actually watch feeling, can actually observe time and its passage. The seventh sense is what we might call the seer. I refer to it typically as the witness or the hidden observer. That interiority that actually can observe all things. It can observe time, therefore it's not bound by time. It is eternal. I'll say that again. It can observe time, therefore it is not bound by time. It's not time. If it's not bound by time, and it's always there, it's always now, it's eternal. This is what is in eternal in each of us. It's what observes your felt sense of anything, your feelings. Therefore, it's not bound by your feelings. It's free of your emotions. It watches your thoughts. Therefore, it's not bound by your thoughts. It is free of your thoughts. This seventh sense actually is this vast opening that is always here. It's never not here. It is always already present infinitely present.
I screwed that up. So forget everything I just said. <laughs> the seventh sense is our sense of time. The eighth sense is our witness. Okay? So this is where it gets actually kind of fun. When you see the teacher utterly screw up his talk. <laughs> Wait, the sixth sense that I'm so lost. <laughs> I'm darmed out. <laughs> the seventh sense being our sense of time. Think about that. Think about your sense of time. It's passage. It's the experience of past, the experience of future. I mean, we go through it all the time. I mean, you notice that, uh, I'm, I'm assuming when you're sitting still, you know, you're, you're on your cushion, you're on your chair, whatever, you're just, you're kind of meditating and you can like, boom, uh, past, oh, past, ooh, future. You know, our sense of that time space is huge when we can back up just slightly from there into the eighth sense or witness, that massive effulgence. It's, it's bigger. It's bigger than that seventh sense. It's bigger than the sixth sense of interpretive self. It's bigger than this seventh sense, our sense of time. It's bigger than soul. Because soul can be witnessed. So this eighth sense is this really beautiful hidden observer, this, this, this thing that we can't qualify, quantify, we can't put it in a box. It's what's prior to the mind putting things into a box. It's exactly what can withstand the terror, knowing full well and having faith that beauty will not annihilate us. It just will tear apart the very things we don't need if we let it. And the witness lets it. And this witness, actually, we can see is kind of this, it's like a bridge to nowhere. Not like a place in Alaska that Ted Stevens lobbied for and got. <laughs> but this bridge, quite literally, to nowhere. This witness, this witnessing awareness, awareness, this eighth sense of ours, we can kind of follow to its source. I dare you to take that journey. It's really where we go. The more stillness we incorporate into being, the more we meditate, the more sincere our practice, the more we really, quite honestly, take it seriously and do something about it. It's not just, you know, kind of a Monday night fling that we create an identity around. Now oh, he's funny. <laughs> Screws up his Dharma talks. <laughs> Tell stupid stories again and again and again. <laughs> what is this? What is this witnessing? This this bridge? It carries us somewhere. It carries us into this nowhereness, this no thingness, this utter emptiness. But the cool thing is, when we empty ourselves out, we become an instrument. The sympathetic chord just needs to be touched and it resonates. 
that's why we were born. We were born to do this work. It has a huge effect on everybody because we suddenly realize that everybody has a huge effect on us. It has a huge effect on the world because we recognize that the world has a huge effect on us. It's not all milk and honey. It's the consciousness that allows for the recognition of sweetness to arise. Equally, it allows the recognition of horror to arise. It doesn't pick one over the other. It doesn't go dual. It stays non-dual. It stays as a conscious reflection of spirit all the time. And when we tap into this consciously again and again and again, it has this beautiful way of kind of seeing us through our despair, our anguish, our victories, our achievements, our biggest successes and our worst failures, our greatest doubts and our absolute certitudes. We just kind of give over to this. We let go. And in the process of letting go, we recognize that it's nearly impossible to do harm from that spacious awareness. Any questions? Yeah. So would you say that guidance comes from that spacious awareness? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a a benign directionless gu uh, guidance. So the reason you go through all this uh, letting go mm -hmm. is to allow that. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the letting go, when we stop hanging on to anything, it carries us. There's something, something yeah, it reminds me kind of of the, uh, of the serenity prayer, that part of the serenity prayer when, you know, I only see one set of footprints here. Is that, that's not the serenity oh, prayer. God, grant me the serenity. Accepting. That's the serenity prayer. What's the one where it's like the footprints? Is that what it's called? Footprints. Mm -hmm. footprints. Oh. There we go, yeah. Where, where, you know, I only see one set of footprints here. That's because that's where I carried you, you know? Now that, as beautiful as it is, it limits God to uh, form. It limits spirit to form. And it's as if we're separate from it. Right? We're not. We are spirit. We are the infinite dancing in this moment. Um, that, of course, freaks people out the minute you say that because it's like, oh, what you're saying is that you're God? No, I'm saying none of us no thing is ever separate from God. You mean you're saying you're equal to God? God is within me. God is within you equally. Not because of my belief or yours. In fact, my belief and or your belief clearly gets in the way of God's free functioning through us. But instead, we begin to meet spirit very consciously this vast open opening that carries it. I mean, the, the, the 
spirit is evolving in a direction, and that direction is expanse. Enjoy the ride, you know. It's going there. You're going to fight it? What the hell for? You know? The only thing to do is to watch these, all these little things that the mind does. Yeah. Keep getting the way of that. Right. And then what happens is we're able to really allow mind to serve a function as a tool. Okay? We then also are able to have infinitely more choices because we're not bound by the confines of mind anymore. We're only bound by the confines of the moment, which, as you know, is infinite. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't screw that part up. Um, the word emptiness, mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time explaining it to people. Yeah, yeah, just lay off of that they one. They say that? Yeah. I know what it Empty is, but it's hard to tell people that the emptiness, that's not good. Yeah, emptiness, yeah, it's like, well, what is it that you do? Well, we practice uh, recognizing our inherent emptiness. <laughs> cool. Um, I'm going to go get uh, a pizza. <laughs> nice talking to you. Emptiness is a real difficult one. Um, uh, I found that to be uh, really uh, kind of a potent turnoff not only to my friends that I would kind of talk to about it, like it sounds like you're experiencing, but also even as a beginning practitioner, I struggled with that word because it seemed to limit it so profoundly when in fact emptiness, if you think emptiness, emptiness is simply space. I don't know, do you say, well, we work on space. Doesn't that freak them out just as much? It started kind of coalescing into something that made sense to me when, uh, and I think makes sense to more, more people, when you start talking about rather than being bound by your thoughts, we begin to explore the space between our thoughts. And in exploring the space between our thoughts, there is an inherent stillness and peace that we can't find through thinking. We can't find through being bound by our feelings or what we want to feel. Play with it. Be creative. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a, I mean, it's no surprise, actually, that you bring that up, that Buddhism wasn't proselytized. It wasn't as easy. It wasn't as easy as just accepting the Buddha as your personal savior, and you'll be fine. That's not what the Buddha was about. The profound teachings of the Buddha really point us in this really cool direction, which is, go that way. I'm pointing. You go. Okay? Are you interested? Are you interested in this? You want some freedom? I got some freedom. Go over there. You have to do the work, though. And in doing so, we all recognize that the Buddha is us. That Christ is us. It's our most sacred sense of self. Right? How beautiful is that? Yeah. You know? Beautiful like you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're 
jackass teacher. I, jackass you, teacher? Yeah. You want me to talk about my jackass teacher? Uh, yeah. Could you explain that again? I just don't Well, know. what what was he saying? He was saying, uh, here here I am, I'm sitting there, and my sense is he totally picked up on the fact that I was probably a quivering mess. It was like, this is almost too much. It's so amazing. It's so beautiful. It's almost too much. And instead of being intimate with that experience of too much, what did I do? It's beautiful. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I just labeled it. Now I'm fine. Prior to that, I didn't know what I was going to do. That was essentially what he was pointing out. Does he say that it's not beautiful? No. It is. Sin? Well, you know, I mean, so you don't like his words, ego. Right? <laughs> right? Well, is that a Buddhist word? Do, you even, do people say that word? Sin? Absolutely. Oh, and, then, and then the way we use it, oh, the way we use it is we cleanse your soul by saying, Shakyamuni. <laughs> no, we don't use the word sin typically in Buddhism, but it's fun messing with you. Um, <laughs> sin means uh, missing the mark. It means missing the mark. It's an archery term. Okay, so you, you, you withdraw from the quiver, okay, and thunk, ah, sin. And so when we miss the mark, yeah, um, I don't think it was what he meant. I think what he meant was shame on you. Can't you just, what, have you learned nothing, Michael? Get right into the fire of chaos and enjoy it. Don't put words on it. But you were enjoying it. Yeah, and I was putting words on it. What would it have been like if I, Joanne, what would it have been like? And I can't answer because I didn't, I didn't have the guts to just sit there until my knees weakened and I collapsed in a puddle of tears at the grace that God had shown me. Yeah. No, much. it's too much. Mm -hmm. It was too much. It is not too much. It is exactly why you are here. It's to be able to allow the heat to be so hot that that shit burns away. And what's left? God. In this moment. Nothing less. Okay? And we see that we are a reflection of that kind of spirituality. And you can't see it if you're immediately trying to categorize and compartmentalize everything. Oh, that's beautiful. That sucks. I hate that. I love that. More of this, please. Right? So it was actually a really a pivotal, pivotal teaching and a very powerful one. Consider it on, on your own. How much do you want to understand and grasp, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody in this room, I mean, that's typically where we go. Try not doing that. See what happens. Oh, but it's so confusing and it You'll be okay. You'll be okay. It doesn't mean check out from the world. It's not about spiritual couch potatoism, okay? It's not about that. It's about actually meeting the world absolutely fully and fearlessly, no matter what happens. Okay? Try it. Well, I just had one question. I had about 50 that came up. So yeah, well, you only get one. You only get one. Okay. Those, those 49, 49 I, I want you to start filing them. Okay. <laughs> sure, thank you. Yes. You know, when you were explaining that, 
feeling like you had to label something. If you were by yourself, you may not have had to give it words. And if you wanted to share, get share, you know, it, I think things are magnified when you share. Mm-hmm. You have to give it a name, don't you? Describe it. I think there are a million ways I could have shared it without saying a word. <laughs> yes, making spasmodic moves in, towards Orion is always a, it's a great communication tool, actually. No, I, I um, the celebration of the beauty of Orion at 4.45 in the morning when everything is just perfect is exactly the same thing is me bowing to you. Okay? It's all that beautiful. Doesn't need words. Words are cool. Words are powerful. Words help us. What are we doing here? I'm talking around emptiness. That's all I do. Right? I tell you how to get into that fire pit. Go, go, that way, go, that way. <laughs> you know? We keep talking about it. Yeah, yeah, well, that's okay. It's, it's part of the job. <laughs> uh, teachers of uh, awakening, we all get together. You haven't anybody going in your pit? No, no, anybody going in the emptiness? No, no, okay, yeah. Hmm. Pass the soy sauce, please, and, you know. It's a very difficult thing. It takes a tremendous amount of heroism. Seriously, to, to, it takes utter fearlessness to be able to walk this path. I try. <laughs> yeah. Dixie Cups O'Dharma. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep pouring. <laughs>